conscious decoupling, or at least focused decoupling, uh, should be the watchword when it comes to our relationship to communist China. It is the week of June 7th, and welcome to episode 83 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, Megan Brown, NSI Senior Fellow and Emerging Technology and Cybersecurity Working Group Lead, will be doing a deep dive with FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr. Commissioner Carr is the Senior Republican on the Federal Communications Commission, and he previously served as the agency's General Counsel and as a legal advisor to then-Commissioner Ajit Pai. Megan, take it away. Well, thank you, Commissioner Carr, for joining us today. Um, Here at National Security Institute, we look forward to Um, chatting with you about uh, the role of the Federal Communications Commission in national security. Uh, For our listeners, the FCC uh, is a five-member independent agency that regulates and manages interstate and international communications by all means, radio, television, wires, satellite, and cable in the U.S. They're the agency responsible for implementing and enforcing uh, the United States communication laws and many regulations. Uh, Right now, the commission has uh, only four of its five members filled, It's split evenly between Republicans and Democrats, and there presently is no nominee for the permanent chair. Uh, But welcome, Brendan. We are very excited to uh, have you here to talk about national security and hear your thoughts. You've been pretty vocal on a lot of things recently, uh, but here we're going to zero in on national security. Well, great to join you. Thanks so much for having me. Look forward to the important discussion. Yeah. So when you first became a commissioner, you know, you had several sort of signature initiatives, infrastructure to get 5G rolling. Uh, which you sometimes couched in terms of great power competition or, say, a race with China. Um, so I think, you know, we want to hear about the FCC's role in national security and just sort of frame it up for our listeners. I don't think traditionally folks have thought of the FCC as a national security agency. It's independent. It's not in the executive branch uh, the way DOJ or the NSA is. Uh, so what what do you see as the FCC's role and what actions are, are you guys taking now that our listeners should be paying particular attention to? Well, it's a great question. I do think there's a, a very serious threat uh, posed by communist China. And I think the FCC does have an important role to play there. One is sort of less directly about national security per se. And this is where you sort of started when we talk about the build out of 5G You know, China looked at the U.S. and looked at how we had a leadership position in 4G, and they decided they wanted to try to enter that space and and dominate the market as we move into 5G to realize all the economic benefits that we saw with 4G and that leadership in the 5G space. And so we needed to get going uh, at the FCC to clear the way for the private sector in the U.S. to build. You know, we don't need to out China, China. We don't need a command and control approach. But what we had was far too much red tape at the federal level, at the state level, the local level. What that meant was back in 2016, uh, you know, we were putting up something like 708 cell sites a year in this country, uh, and China was just blowing that number away. So we engaged in some updates, and that allowed the private sector to build something like 46,000 cell sites in 2019 alone. And so that was one very significant um, effort that we did to allow uh basically the U.S. economy through U.S. providers to compete with China in the 5G space. But there's also, as you noted, a more direct role for the FCC when it comes to security. One of the main um, efforts that we've been undertaking in this regard is taking a look at equipment uh, purchased, uh, equipment produced by entities that are owned or controlled by the communist regime in China. And that in the main has taken um, the form of us looking very hard 
at Huawei, ZTE, and other entities. And over the last couple of years, we've taken a series of steps to uh, mitigate or eliminate that threat. And then the other component has been leadership globally. And we, uh, through the State Department, through former Chairman Pai, went around the world and, uh, and shined a light on some of the security threats posed by Huawei and ZTE. And that was part of a broader turning of the ship and turning our allies away from Huawei, ZTE towards more secure options. So, you know, whether it's just the pure cutting red tape and letting the private sector build to compete uh, or more directly addressing the national security threats, we do have a role to play. But it's a supportive role, you know, in the main, and we can talk more about this. I think this should be centered at DHS and other places. We should sit at their table, but we shouldn't all uh, stand up our own tables uh, to deal with these issues. We need to be uh, having a seat, but at their table. Well, of course, I'm glad to hear you say that. One of the dynamics in cybersecurity and national security lately is, you know, the sort of multiplicity of federal actors, right? It's it's challenging for the private sector to keep track of, you know, what's going on at Commerce and its many work streams, supply chain task force at DHS, lots of different things moving that are that can be complementary, but also have the sort of risk of being, you know, sort of fragmented and, and a lot of different actors, DOD's putting out lists, the Federal Acquisition Supply Council's doing stuff. Um, and I think that you heard that in some of the discussions about the FCC's activity on the covered equipment proceeding, right? And I think it'd be helpful for folks to understand uh, the FCC initiated its review of of sort of Huawei and ZTE and related issues before Congress acted in the Secure Networks Act. Um, this was several years ago, but maybe you can give us a sense, you know, we're now Congress has acted, there's a rip and replace program. Um, it's pretty well along, but Back when it first sort of started, it was not a command from Congress. It was the FCC kind of thinking creatively. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how that came to be and what your goals were there. Yeah, and before I do, I mean, touching back on the point that you that you made right there, when you think about the threats in the digital world and our response, it's not too different than the threats in the in the in the physical world. And without sort of going into sort of hyperbolic statements, if you think back to 9-11 and obviously the very physical threat that came from foreign bad actors, one concern that people had was not that we didn't have uh, components of the government focus on this threat, but it wasn't in a way that was organized. We had a siloed approach. You know, that was a problem. And you can, I'm not an expert on whether people believe that, you know, the DHS uh, standing up that entity um, has exactly, you know, worked the way people envisioned or not. I, I don't really have a view on that. But the concept that we had too many entities at their own tables with their own silos and something fell through the crack is what led to the standing up of DHS. I think that concept is the same one we need to import into the digital sphere, which is we don't want the FCC standing up a cyber security response team in a silo. We want us at one table with DHS, with other experts. So that's the, the framework that I bring to, to cyber stuff at the FCC. But your point, you know, a couple of years ago, I do think the FCC was on the front end of the curve of taking a look at the threats posed by Huawei and ZTE. Um, and we started a rulemaking asking questions about whether purely on a going forward basis, we should limit the entry of new equipment purchased with federal dollars, universal service fund dollars into the network. It was at a point in time when we were still getting a handle on the scope and nature of the threat. So one view would be to say, well, we don't know everything about this threat yet. We're not sure about it. So at a minimum, a measured response is to stop allowing this equipment newly into the networks. And one thing that I added into that proceeding at the front end was, 
Well, should we also consider ways that we can take equipment out of the networks that's already gotten here, particularly if this threat turns out to be bigger and wider and deeper than we thought? So we sought comment on that. And as we did that, more and more information came to be revealed, uh, both public information and non-public information about the potential threats posed by Huawei and ZTE. So that when we got to the order, we not only stopped the introduction of new equipment, but also started this rip and replace process. And then as you pointed out, Congress came in after the fact and gave the funding and uh, whether we needed authority or not, uh, at least funding to complete that process. And that's where we are now. So I think we started out as sort of a rifle shot based on what we knew about the threats. And we decided to go a bit deeper uh, once those threats became more apparent to us. Have you guys given, I guess, one question um, related to the covered equipment list is, you know, there, there, is, there are several lists uh, that are out there of companies of concern under various regimes. DOD has lists of companies associated with the communist uh, military apparatus. Can you give a little sense of how the FCC's list, right? That the way you guys arrived at that was it's derivative of what other agencies are doing, right? Because you're not the IC. So I think you do have to rely to some degree on the judgments of other agencies. Can you give us a sense of how the FCC fits into that from an information gathering standpoint? Because, you know, you're a regulator and not an intelligence agency, and that might put you in a little bit of a tough spot in terms of how transparent to be with some of these companies about your thinking and and how to get on and off of lists, so to speak. Yeah, we do lean on the expertise of, you know, the entities that are in the intelligence community itself. And I think we need to continue to stay coordinated in that effort so that the entities that are on our covered list are ones that make sense based on all the other lists that are out there uh, in that is informed by the judgment of the IC, but we also get, you know, all these briefings ourselves. We have our, our little skiff that we go to and we, you know, um, have our own judgment as well, but it's certainly informed by, you know, the experts that are in uh, the intelligence community. Yeah. So, no, that's helpful. Um, I think, you know, pivoting a little bit to the sort of equipment authorization space, you came out kind of early, earlier this year and identified a concern about the FCC's um, oversight of the equipment authorization regime and the the ability of companies that are on the covered equipment list, right, who are no longer, who, are, who have been identified as companies of concern and for whose equipment federal dollars cannot be spent. The fact that, that some of those companies can still get equipment approved for sale and marketing in the United States was of concern to you. Um, and that has ripened into an actual sort of notice of proposed rulemaking and NOI. Um, can you sort of shed some light on your goals and also sort of how you've been working with the acting chairwoman? Because um, I think this is a place where you guys are, you know, it's complimentary. I have my own thoughts on the item itself. Um, and you'll hear a lot in the comment cycle about some of those pieces. But what are your goals there? Um, and I guess before you jump in, for listeners, right, there's a sort of a, a very robust set of FCC regulations that rely on FCC engineers as well as um, some certification bodies to apply the core regulations regarding um, say radio frequency emissions, um, accessibility issues, and, and sort of the how how devices that come into this country that use radio spectrum um, are allowed to operate. So that's sort of the context for this for listeners who might not be aware of that regulatory regime. So Brandon, what are your goals there, um, and how have you been working with the chairwoman? Yeah, well, first, you know, obviously, kudos to uh, Acting Chair Rosenworcel for moving this item forward. 
you know, this is an idea that, you know, I actually inserted some comments on in one of our rulemakings, uh, maybe a year or two years ago. And then to your point earlier this year, I spun it out into a more defined proposal. As we talked about, we've identified um, equipment that we believe poses an unacceptable risk to national security. We put that on this covered list as we talked about. And now carriers are prohibited from using federal dollars, universal service support, uh, to purchase or maintain equipment on that, which is great. That you know, gets at a significant portion of the threat because our analysis uh, leads us to believe that a significant amount of this equipment is only in networks uh, that are receiving these federal support or only because of the ability to purchase it through federal support. But that doesn't necessarily plug um, the challenge entirely. And I remind you when I think about these issues of a trip that I took up to Great Falls, Montana, Maelstrom Air Force Base. And I spent time there with Colonel Jennifer Reeves, and she maintains um, and is in charge of these um, ICBM missile silos that are spread across hundreds of miles of Montana. When you drive between these missile silos, there's nothing out there. It's, uh, it's wheat fields and big sky country. But dotted throughout that landscape are uh, cell towers running on high-powered Huawei gear. Uh, and it's enough to raise uh, some questions about why exactly that equipment is where it is. What um, uh, technologies does that uh, equipment have in terms of being able to uh, surveil what's going on up there? So I think what we did was a good first step, which is said you can't insert Huawei gear into the networks with federal dollars, but that exact same carrier or the carrier right next to it can continue today to purchase this gear with private dollars and insert it in the same place at, of the network as it is today. And so I think that's that's a loophole. The threat is not the source of funding. Obviously, the threat is the presence of this stuff in the equipment. So I identified this as a loophole that I thought we should go forward and work to plug. Uh, again, kudos to the chair for moving forward an item that would seek comment on doing that. There are concerns have been raised about our legal authority to do that. Uh, the argument, among other things, is that our equipment authorization approval is sort of narrowly circumscribed to saying yes or no based on power levels or interference levels. And we'll have comment on that. I have a, a hard time reaching the conclusion and certainly have not reached the conclusion that if we have this equipment on the covered list that we've said poses an unacceptable national security risk, uh, that we would say, well, our hands are tied and we have to stamp approval on that equipment to go into networks, uh, notwithstanding that determination. You know, Obviously, this is something that'll be hashed out in the comment cycle, but that's not my view uh, at the moment that we would be compelled by law to continue to approve this year uh, for purchase and use by private entities. Yeah, and I think um, I think that's all super interesting to get your perspective on that. Um, you know, one reaction to the big sky deployments, right? And I, I get it. There's that equipment in there. One of the themes that I think folks have continually emphasized to DHS, NTIA. I think to the FCC as well is, you know, part of the reason that gear was out there is, you know, the U.S. government in certain respects, I don't think did as good a job as it could have in communicating risk information to the private sector. Right. Um, so that I think is a challenge. Congress took steps in, uh, I think, the Secure Networks Act to get NTIA to focus on how to get supply chain risk information out into the broader economy. So it's not just the folks in DC who deal with CFIUS and who have clearances who understand what the US government is thinking. So I think you know that's an important piece of it, whether the FCC has a role to play there, I think is an interesting question, uh, but sort of having that better communication 
about what the U.S. government is seeing and concerned about. One thought on the the item just to sort of flag for you or to, to get your thoughts on is, you know, totally take your point about, you know, certain equipment that, you know, if it's sort of core network equipment could be of serious concern. But um, I think you'll hear from folks that the equipment authorization regime, if it's going to be tweaked, it might need to be tweaked to allow for more of a risk-based approach, because obviously the current regime covers, you know, a huge array of equipment. And so I think you'll hear that in terms of uh, potential pushback, but certainly, you know, glad to see that it's out. And there's an NOI component as well that asks some really forward-thinking questions that pick up on the acting chairwoman's uh, proposals for, say, getting the FCC more involved in broader cybersecurity. Um, so I think, you know, we all look forward to seeing how that shakes out. Speaking of kind of equipment and, um, you know, a focus on network equipment, we have heard a lot about Open RAN over the last year or two, Open Radio Access Networks. Um, you guys have been taking a lot of incoming, and there's a lot of interest in this in different parts of the government as a potential um, security enhancement. Perhaps it's a way to diversify the um, supplier base for network equipment. I think there's a lot of perceived uh, benefits. Can you sort of explain what your perspective, you know, to the extent you, you feel comfortable, what is Open RAN? What do you think it means for network security and kind of what's the FCC doing about ORAN? Yeah, I think this is part of either the, the third or the fourth prong of our response to the threat posed by insecure gear, you know, prong one being let's stop allowing people to uh, insert this equipment, insecure equipment into their network with federal funds. Prong two is let's uh, use this rip and replace program to get the equipment out uh, that uh, got into the networks. Uh, Prong three being what we're looking at right now, which is how do we plug this loophole to make sure that uh, uh, gear doesn't go into the network, insecure gear, simply because private dollars are involved. And the fourth prong is ORAN, which is how do we give carriers both in the U.S. and globally uh, greater choice among secure options for uh, performance of the network? So historically, we had what we call a vertically integrated uh, approach to network gear, which means if you're a carrier, you would basically have one vendor per city. You'd have a, a, a Nokia city or a Samsung city because the equipment didn't talk to each other uh, very well. And I, I I describe this as similar basically to the PC market um, back in the 80s, 90s, when Apple first came out, it was a vertically integrated system, software and hardware together. And what happened ultimately was, uh, you know, we had disruption where uh, certain entities, Microsoft and others, just went after the software part of the market. Uh, others went after the hardware part of the market, but that disaggregation, the separating of the hardware and software layers, what drove down prices and increased performance in the PC market. That's what ORAN is about in the wireless market, which is you can have um, relatively less expensive pieces of hardware, but the brains are being run at the software level. So that's more security, it's more competition, and it gives US-based companies the chance to compete. You know, when you are competing at the software level, you don't need a $20, $30 billion a year um, R&D operation to come up with this sophisticated hardware, uh, coding is much easier and cost effective. So we're getting a lot of new entrants that are able to offer choices to carriers for performance that before some felt they only could go to Huawei or ZTE or others. So I think it's it's a great trend as a general matter, but again, I think there's a way to look at it as sort of a third or fourth prong of this approach to enhancing network security. At the same time, I've been sensitive to not mandating ORAN. We want to let 
Uh, the carriers make this decision for themselves about what's in their interest, what's in their customer's interest. But I think we have a role to play uh, to the extent that carriers are interested in helping to support the, the development of ORAN and make sure it's a mature enough technology where it can compete with these uh, legacy technologies. And how, Commissioner Carr, how is the FCC supporting that? Is that sort of, you know, um, looking out at the global standards bodies or is it internally sort of um, promoting R&D? What are the actual things the FCC is doing on ORAN? I know looking at it and studying it and trying to be supportive, but what does that mean sort of brass tacks? Yeah, there's certainly been a push for us to support it or for the federal government to support it monetarily, which is fine. There's a lot of money uh, swashing around in D.C. right now. So I don't uh, I don't criticize the O-REN industry for asking for support financially. I've been trying to, to find ways that we can support it through non-financial means or maybe even addition to it since other people are, are, are sure to do that. Um, it's been a challenge. But so, for instance, we've held a number of forums at the FCC. Uh, Chairman Pai held one. I believe Acting Chair Rosenworcel held one. I think that's one way that we can do it. Um, as we've gone through this rip and replace, we've tried to make sure that you know ORAN uh, is potentially eligible uh, to be part of that replacement piece. So I think there's a convening authority we've been doing uh, in addition to the funding that other people are interested in to help uh, make sure we can support that. Um, so let's move a little bit to the other chunk of national security issues that the FCC regularly has to deal with. And that involves um, in, in your, in your capacity as the arbiter of who's allowed to offer licensed services, there is a national security interest in looking at who those license holders can be. And I think there's been over the past several years, a really heightened focus on foreign direct investment and looking at the, the strings that come with FDI, but also, just making sure the government has visibility, right? The Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. has been around forever, um, but not everyone knows that it has kind of an an, an adjunct, which is Team Telecom, which was renamed. I think last year, President Trump put out an executive order that kind of reconstituted it. Previously, Team Telecom didn't really have a statutory basis. It was sort of in this netherworld. And I know you and your colleagues had looked at different reforms uh, for listeners Team Telecom is the group of um, executive branch agencies that basically reviews potential transactions that are subject to certain FCC approvals and sort of advises the FCC on whether there's a national security and public safety sort of equity there. Um, Can you describe kind of, Brendan, sort of what the FCC's interest here, how you think about and how the current agency is thinking about national security in the context of these licensed transactions and FDI um, and sort of the team telecom role, how how that's evolved? Because it's very much in flux right now, it appears to us. Yeah, there's a couple of components of the discussion. One that's, you know, I think related to the, the question you're asking, uh, although maybe not not directly, one of which has to do with this question of what we call uh, 214s, which is authorization for uh, carriers to operate in the U.S. And so we took a look and a number of telecom carriers are authorized to what we call connect to the network here that are ultimately owned or controlled by the communist regime in China. And we took a look there. What we saw was some disturbing trends. For instance, there'd be network traffic that would have had originated originated in LA and was destined for Washington, D.C., and it got routed through Guangzhou, China, which is not the most direct or cost-effective way that you would route data from L.A. to D.C., although I'm not a cartographer, so maybe I'm, I'm missing something about how, how maps work. So what we did at that point was I called for a, a top-to-bottom review 
of every carrier that um, has a 214 that has ties back to the communist regime of China. And since then, we've now issued show cause orders and taken other actions to look at revoking the authority of those entities to operate. So that's one way that we've been looking at uh, the authority of carriers to operate here. You talked uh, about the, the CFIUS side, which would be probably more less about the operation of those actual carriers as opposed to you know, investments in these different entities. And you're right, we you know, have this process where we work with Team Telecom and other national security experts to review potential threats there. I personally haven't been involved in the last you know, six months or so with that review process, but if we are you know, stagnating or, or falling behind uh, in that review process, then I think that would be you know, not a great trend. We want to make sure that we have sort of a vigorous process, but one where we're you know, moving quickly to final decisions, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down so people can have some, some certainty. Yeah, no, that's that's a good perspective. It's certainly, you know, from the private equity and the investor side, the regulatory certainty is is extremely valuable and sometimes elusive. I know, you know, with the pandemic and all all of the change challenges that folks have had, but um, hopefully we'll see, you know, continued, you know, move to authorize and permit transactions where the national security risk is is low, maybe from companies that are in countries that are not foreign adversaries and things of that nature. Um, so big picture, let's take a step back. You know, you've you've been very vocal about the Communist Party in China and sort of, you know, in the last administration, we saw a multi-pronged aggressive approach to sort of resetting the relationship with China across trade policy, across, you know, sort of the many of the, you know, tools in the federal government's toolbox. After having lived through that and now sort of looking ahead, how do you see the tensions with China playing out over the next five years in terms of uh, whether it's their designs on tech leadership, um, et cetera? I just think, be curious your perspective on what you see playing out. Well, I think, yeah, conscious decoupling, or at least Focus decoupling uh, should be the watchword when it comes to our relationship to communist China. I think uh, COVID-19, I think before COVID-19, uh, some of the issues we were seeing with Huawei and ZTE, uh, obviously, I think human rights issues. I think all of this stuff um, goes to the broader point that we need to fundamentally rethink our relationship with communist China. Um, I also think there's a serious issue continuing to be with uh, forced labor in, in, in communist China. You know, we said for, for decades, uh, never again when it comes to genocide. And yet I think, you know, we are not doing enough to address uh, the genocide taking place in the Xinjiang region. I've also put forward an idea that says as part of looking at this equipment authorization, we should do a stronger check for our supply chain to make sure we are not, uh, you know, blessing uh, communist China's use of forced labor by approving devices uh, that were manufactured with it. So I do think both in the tech and telecom space and foreign policy, uh, and more broadly, a reoriented approach to communist China is very important. Uh, and I think it's something that we've now realized in Washington, D.C. on a bipartisan basis. I mean, it was, um, you know, bipartisan perspective for a long time um, that essentially looked the other way to, to communist China's abuses. I think the last administration helped to turn the tide on it, but it's not partisan. I think we see, you know, Senator Schumer uh, introducing legislation and, and looking to strengthen our posture with respect to communist China. Again, uh, acting chair Rosehorst will bringing forward um, national security items. So I think we have moved in the right direction in reorienting our approach to communist China, but I think we got to continue to show uh, the strength in the resolve. And I think that's why we got to look at this equipment authorization process. I think we should go further 
and look uh, more closely at the use of slave labor, potential slave labor in our supply chains. But I, I think, you know, again, we see the, the, the breakdown right now in the idea of, um, you know, one country, two systems. And then we sort of tried to import one country, two systems into our tech policy. And again, you know, look at Huawei, the idea that we can have this entity that is so deeply owned and controlled by the communist regime, and yet somehow, you know, think that that uh, uh, nefarious influence isn't going to work its way into equipment placed in the U.S. I think that's the same type of naive thinking um, that has, you know, again, led people to believe that, you know, if we give Hong Kong a taste of freedom, that freedom will find its way into mainland China. I think it's, it's the oppression uh, and the censorship that works its way out of mainland China. So I think we've got to be very careful about opening our systems up to uh, influence uh, by the communist regime. So a lot of what you just covered um, with respect to the last administration's efforts, really, you know, we saw manifest in international outreach, right? Uh, Chairman Pai was overseas a lot. We saw former Secretary of State Pompeo out there a lot. We saw the national security apparatus um, doing a lot of international outreach to try and raise the profile of infrastructure security issues. Um, do you think that sort of work and effort was successful on on the whole? Yeah, absolutely. When when that effort started, uh, Rob Strayer, Pompeo, Pi, uh, going across Europe. Um, you know, I did a trip to Africa, raising some of these same points. People looked at it and said, "Well, we're leading, uh, but nobody is following." And you know, lo and behold, you know, a year later, eighteen months later, the tide had turned, and other entities globally were taking a hard look at you know Huawei and others. And so, I think that approach should continue. Um, and at, at this point, I don't have any indication that it that it won't continue, where the U.S. works with you know like-minded allies from you know Africa to South America to Europe uh, to make sure that everyone understands you know the threats that are posed here, because you know, again, the communist regime is is running this, um, you know, one belt, one road initiative. And Huawei, ZTE are sort of the digital component of that. And so I do think we need to have a, you know, a global strategy for um, addressing the threats that that can pose. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the, you know, the the sort of current events that are that are going on, not sort of to do a deep dive on any of them in particular, but in order to bring us back to some comments you made earlier about sort of DHS and how, how it rightly takes a sort of central role on some of these coordinating activities, which to me is really about sort of public-private partnership. And, and that has been a longstanding federal approach to cybersecurity. I think it applies in spades to the telecom sector. And there's a few examples of that. One is the Communication Security Reliability and Interoperability Council, uh, CISRIC. Um, I almost sometimes forget what the acronym stands for because everyone just calls it CISRIC, um, which is an advisory committee uh, that helps, you know, inform the Federal Communications Commission's priorities and approaches. I was curious if you could sort of talk about CISRIC. Is it helpful to the commission? Um, Acting Chairwoman Rosenworcel says she's going to recharter it. That's, I think, in process. There's, It's been around for a long time. It has tackled lots of hard technical issues that don't lend themselves to like a neat regulatory um, approach. So I was curious to get your thoughts on CISRIC because I think it's an example of the public-private partnership model, and I'm curious for your perspective on it. Yeah, I think that approach makes a lot of sense. I mean, oftentimes in government, um, when you go to impose, you know, a sort of a uh, a regulatory solution, you can often be focused on, you know, the one-off security threat of the past, and it's not necessarily tailored to or uh, reflective to what is coming next. And so, the CISRIC process, where you have, you know, federal stakeholders, private stakeholders, you know, working collaboratively to put together 
you know, smart, nimble approaches to cybersecurity makes a lot of sense. Obviously, there's going to be points in time where it's important to codify this and step forward. But having that um, area in which these stakeholders are getting together, um, I, I think is invaluable. I think it also goes to, you know, the, the point that I talked about before, which is we should have these, you know, pockets of expertise. But at the end of the day, we should all be centered on, you know, a DHS-led approach. I mean, if you look at the White House, um, they don't have situation rooms. They have the situation room because you don't want multiple different tables and multiple different areas where this activity is taking place. So I think um, the CISRIC approach makes sense for housing a lot of these conversations, and then we should, you know, get together uh, at the DHS table when it comes time to, you know, actually, uh, you know, move some of that more forward. Thanks. So we're we're going to wrap up soon, and I'd be remiss since we're blessedly coming out of, God willing, the pandemic, and things are starting to get back to normal. Uh, I'm looking forward to an in-person FCC open meeting at some point in the near future would be nice. Uh, but I was curious for your thoughts on how, from your perspective, the networks held up for, you know, during the pandemic, we all obviously moved to everything being remote, but were there takeaways you you have from the collective experience and from what you've seen of the telecom sector? Yeah, I mean, we had really a, a black, black swan event from the perspective of the network. I mean, virtually overnight, uh, as lockdown orders spread across the country, people turned to the internet to recreate their daily routines. And that resulted in a, a spike of about 30% in network traffic. And that may not sound like a lot a lot in abstract, but if you think about it, um, engineers plan for, you know, two, three, four, five, 10%, uh, you know, increase in network traffic over <clears throat> a year or set periods of time. And so, it was like taking the network traffic, the levels of traffic that network engineers weren't expecting to see for a year and a half to two years down the road and loading that onto the network overnight. Uh, and yet our networks continue to perform and other countries didn't have that same level of performance. Uh, there was a slowdown in speeds in uh, in China. Um, European countries saw a downturn. So I do think there was something to be said for the resilience of America's communications networks and whatever policies we put in place that have led to that, we certainly want to continue down that path. A lot of people want to bear hug uh, the European model for regulating networks because they believe incorrectly, as the studies show, actually, uh, that it costs less. That's, that's not what the data shows. But even if you were to assume that, you know, it costs less for what? A network that isn't going to perform uh, when you need it most. The other thing is, you know, funding mechanisms. You know, we are, you know, obviously straining right now under the current universal service approach, which is funded basically by a tax that shows up on the telephone bills for consumers. And so I've offered another way of uh, solving that issue, which would be to look at the, the revenues of the businesses, big tech that benefit so much from these networks and asking them just to pay a, a fair and equitable share uh, to support those networks. Yeah, very, very interesting and controversial in certain respects. But <laughs> the USF contribution factor is a, a, a little out of hand, it seems. It's getting higher and higher. That's a trivia question we often offer our summer associates is what 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 portion of your bill is a tax um so anyway uh well commissioner thank you very much for joining um the national security institute for this podcast um on behalf of all of our fellows and leaders um it's great to have this relationship and we love hearing from policymakers um you know real world and hearing what you're thinking and, and what you're seeing uh so really appreciate you taking the time amid a busy schedule to share your thoughts with us on these very timely issues I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. That's a wrap. 
As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Megan Brown for hosting. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Thank you.